Welcome to On the Bench. A happy new year to all of Null Nation. And what a new year it has been so far. Let's see that the Seminoles capped off 2022 in style with a 35-32 win against Oklahoma in the Cheez-It Bowl. I got to explore a new brand of Cheez-It, which we'll get into that, I'm sure, at some point. Uh, And then 2023 hits and FSU gets an announcement that Fabian Lovett is back and gets one of the a commitment for one of the top transfers in the country induced Cypress. So there is a lot to get to here in this episode of On the Bench. I am joined by my two 24-7 sports colleagues, Zach Blostein, Chris Nee, those 24-7 sports colleagues. Gentlemen, Happy New Year. How's it going? It's great. Thanks for asking. Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you. Chris is so lively. Happy New Year, everyone. Um, it's going great. Loving how the New Year started, especially for you know FSU-related stuff. So um, let's keep chugging along. I think starting point for us, Chris, is we need to show some appreciation to young Zach Blostein because we were trying to like just, well, I was not thinking straight multiple times yesterday. Don't give me that look. I don't understand what's happening. I feel very judged. What makes that uh, any different than any other day? It was, it's, it's more, uh, it's worse than usual. I had in-laws, I had travel. I, my dad, I stayed with him for a couple nights in Orlando. And not only does he snore constantly, he has night terrors. And he's talking in his sleep constantly. Uh, so I, I'm not as fresh as normal. So anyways, there was a couple of things yesterday. Like we had some scoop that we could have written and I didn't even think about to write it. And Zach was like, Brendan, you should write it. Uh, it was about Fabian Lovett, about Jared Verse, about Ventral Cypress. And so that was good. Uh, and then, Chris, our most viewed story yesterday with everything that we had going on at Knowles 24-7 uh, was Zach's story on the transfer rankings, FSU being number one in the in the transfer class. So It's easy money. It, it, and that Zach was like, hey, layups, do it, guys. And I wasn't thinking about any of that. So thank you, Zachary. No problem. How to, yeah. how to get you geezers in place from time to time, you know? That's I was in look. full support of you, Zach. You brought it up. No, I said, I'm yes, good. easy money. This is, he's, he's like the coach telling us, like, hey, guys, take the layup. Don't do the set shot from 40 feet away because you're old and you have bad knees. They're letting you take it to the hole. Take it. Take it. You want to start off talking about the football game? Let's let's do that. The season's over for FSU. Uh, we will do a 2022 season in review roundtable with the entire Knowles 24-7 crew, uh, I think, on Tuesday evening. Right, Zach? Help me out here. Tuesday evening. Yeah, I had to remind you that this morning. Thank you. Yeah, like I'm, I'm struggling here. Today's so we'll, Monday, buddy. It doesn't Today's feel like Monday. a Monday. Uh, yesterday felt like Monday. Um, Give it time. It will. So we will go over the entire season, uh, maybe take a look at, you know, whether team box checkers or team landing stickers won, uh, do a few of our make fun of our win share totals, which were all probably very, very much so under FSU winning nine regular season games and, and then a 10th win against Oklahoma. Uh, but let's just talk about how things ended this, this season. And that was with a 35 to 32 win over Oklahoma in the Cheez-It Bowl. Uh, we were all there. Chris was the only one like, quote unquote, working the event. And he was working really hard. I stepped up in the press box for a little bit to see him uh, at halftime. My man was a little flustered, but you know he does what Chris does, which is figure it out. I wasn't flustered. I was in the zone, tunnel vision. I did not I, need to hear your stories. I was there to do work. He seemed frustrated by the internet. This whole place sucks. The internet sucks. This team sucks. I'm not a. I am not a huge fan of Camping World Stadium as someone who's been there eight million times for state championships as well as other events. I've never truly had a great experience there. I'm just not a fan of the place. I kind of hate that we have to be back there in nine months. The parking to get out of there, to get in there was crazy. I got yelled at because I accidentally pulled into like a like a, a fried seafood restaurant thinking it was like where I was supposed to be parking. And someone at the order thing started yelling at me. 
And then someone came out of the building and said, hey, man, you can't be here. I'm like, I'm trying to move. I'm trying to leave. I'm surrounded by cars. Uh, and then getting out was also a cluster. It took like an hour to get out of the parking lot. Anyways, let's talk about the actual game, shall we? Let's talk about it. FSU wins 35-32. Uh, and, and what was an extremely exciting, uh, dramatic win for FSU. Uh, let's start off with the offense because that they kind of carried the day for FSU. Jordan Travis, I was watching in the stands. Zach was in the stands. We're actually really close to each other. Hi, Zach. Uh, I had no idea, Chris, that Jordan Travis threw for 418 yards. Like, I thought it was a lot, but I guess a lot of that came in the fourth quarter, and my man just went off. 27 to 38, 418 yards, two touchdowns, one interception, a robust passer rating of 175.6. Yeah, after he throws a pick that Billy Bowman got because Johnny Wilson didn't do a good job boxing out, basically. Um he goes nine for 10 down the stretch with the touchdown to Marcus Finn Douglas and kind of leads FSU to that victory. I thought Jordan was excellent in the game. The offense started uh, from a point standpoint, not very well, 11 points in the first half. I don't think any of us had them scoring that few points in the first half. That was kind of mind blowing that that's how it played out. But once it got rolling, they started getting in the end zone. They looked like what I expected them to look like against an Oklahoma defense. That isn't particularly very good. They do create some havoc. The Danny Stutzman kid. I absolutely love watching in person. Uh, he's a linebacker. He flies around. He does what I want a linebacker to do for a defense. He was fun to watch. But in general, Oklahoma's D is not overly impressive. From an off or from an FSU against their offense standpoint, FSU's defense, I thought that Jeff Levy did a really good job kind of keeping FSU off balance, creating some one-on-ones, attacking those one-on-ones. And again, you take a month off from playing football, tackling usually kind of goes by the wayside, and I think we saw a good bit of that on Thursday evening where FSU just wasn't a very good tackling team. I think PFF credited them with nine missed tackles. I'll be a, you know, brutally honest. I thought it was a hell of a lot more watching it in person. It nine just seemed, felt like – Nine seemed generous, yes. I'm yeah, you. it just seemed like a lot of instances where FSU had an opportunity, uh, you know, hit, touched a guy in the backfield, got to a guy at the line of scrimmage, but then it turned into a chunk play because they just didn't bring him down to the ground. And then, you know, the next man up was either shielded or out of place or just took a bad angle, whatever it was. You know, I've watched a lot of bowls this year. and I've watched a lot of bowls for a lot of years and covered a lot of bowls. Defense usually kind of it, it gets, uh, I don't, I guess, thrown out of rhythm is the best way of describing it. But a month off and it creates some concerns. I think the the playoffs kind of showed that those some of not all four of those teams necessarily, but multiple of those teams are very good defensive teams and. Well, those things were full-blown shootouts for a reason. So, you know, I, I know defense is going to be part of this discussion, so I just figured I'd kind of share that view a little bit. Yeah, start preparing them a little bit. I like that. So, Zach, uh, you're in the stands with your dad watching the game. Uh, what was your takeaway from your vantage point about just the general flow of the game? What stood out to you? What was exciting? What was concerning? Yeah, so I guess I want to start with with uh, my main concern. Um, I guess or I think everyone's concern is, you know, obviously the the – um, Florida State's offensive struggles early on in that game. Um, I think what initially happened was Oklahoma was doing what most teams did to FSU last year and dared them to throw the football one on one against their DBs. And you know, obviously, the the stats tell the story of later on in the game. Jordan Travis, you know, took that challenge and ran with it. But I don't think that was FSU's plan early on. Right? They they believe. They can run the ball. I mean, they showed the past six, seven games that they can run the ball on any um, defense in the country. Well, Oklahoma was you know, not about to let that happen, at least uh, on their you know go-to running plays like uh, outside zone and, and counter. Um, and that was pretty clear early on that that stuff was not going to work. Well, 
I think Mike Norvell did a great job adjusting to Oklahoma's defensive game plan. Obviously, Brent Venables is one of the best defensive minds in the country, despite that Oklahoma defense not being great uh, on paper this this season. Um, but I thought Mike Norvell did a great job of adjusting, like I said. Um, and, and you know, Jordan Travis was was taking those opportunities to throw to his talented wideouts like Johnny Wilson, um, obviously over 200 yards receiving. Um, I think a large reason for that is because of just how that 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 game was schemed by Oklahoma defensively. They didn't want to give up the the go-to bread and butter runs that Florida State loves to do, um, as we've seen them do over the past back half of the season, well against pretty much any defense. So um, that, that was the biggest takeaway, especially early on um, on offense. But FSU's offense, you know, started to get rolling um, towards the middle and, and latter portion of that game. And then the defense, like, I know everyone's going to scrutinize them, um, but just watching, like, I mean, Chris kind of mentioned this, watching the the, the college football playoff games um, a few days ago, I mean, these defenses, Georgia's giving up, I think, below 15 points a game and gave up over 40 in that game to Ohio State. Ohio State's a great offense, but they're not, that's a team that, that got blown out by Michigan the week, or the game before. So, like, to me, like, I think Florida State obviously can do better on defense. Um, Oklahoma, like, despite that, Oklahoma is one of the best offensive uh, teams in the country. Like, but despite them having a 6-6 six and six record uh, going into the game, they were, on paper, a great offensive team. And people are going to know they were missing, you know, multiple starting offensive linemen, their leading rusher. Um, obviously, that didn't matter, right? They had over 250 yards rushing on the on the night between both of their true freshman running backs and Javante Barnes and, and Gavin uh, Sawshuck, I believe his last name is. I mean, they, they were both really impressive, um, especially Sawshuck. So uh, those are guys that are blue chip guys out of high school. Oklahoma is not a talentless team. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't too overly concerned about the defensive performance, although I would have liked to see, um, you know, some stuff fixed up in the game. You also have to note Florida State was was playing without multiple starters um, throughout that game, right? Going into the game without Fabian Lovett, and then they lose both of their starting cornerbacks in the game, Renardo Green and Jerry and Jones. Um, yeah, so... And, and their I'm, starting safety, Akeem yeah. Dent as well, and Shaheen Brown, the main replacement, had one of those bands over his exactly. uh, leg as yeah. well. So, yeah. So I'm, not, I'm not here to, like, go and, and just harp on this defensive performance because I don't think it was a great one by any stretch, but I also don't think it was one that lost like could have lost FSU or was the reason FSU could have lost that game like yes they gave up a good amount of points to a team that was missing a lot of players but they were missing a lot of players in their own right um and like Chris said you're you're a month off from from live football action Uh, I think that was kind of what you saw in the first half a little bit of rust there um not a lot of you know just they they weren't executing well um especially in tackling so yeah I Overall, I thought it was an overall like perf- or solid performance by the defense. Not great, uh, but not terrible like some are making it out to be. Let's. So, I, I real, do want to stop quick. on the. Oh, go ahead, Chris. To add a statistical piece to the d- defensive discussion, FSU's defense. There, it's a very in-depth discussion, so I don't want to get sidetracked. But one thing it was consistently good at this year was not allowing explosive big plays. They were not good. at about that against Oklahoma. They allowed 14 big plays on a day. Six passes went for 179, so roughly 30 yards per completion, and then eight rushes for 123. 
three of Oklahoma's touchdowns came via big plays. So just to put a statistical piece in there, about 60% of their total yardage came via big plays. So you can't allow it. There are disappointing things about what FSU's defense did. Zach did mention injuries. We saw Akeem Dent go out. We saw Jerry and Jones go out. That's a starting corner, starting safety. Uh, you know, we saw other pieces get banged up on each side of ball. And yes, Oklahoma was also down a lot of people. So there's a whole lot of nuance to the discussion. We're not going to get buried in that. I'm not hitting the panic button on the defense because the defense was still kind of what I thought it was going into the game. The explosive big plays can't be allowed at the rate that FSU allowed them in the game. I think that's probably my biggest takeaway from what FSU's defense didn't do against Oklahoma. And But again, Jeff Levy can coach. And Jeff Jeff Levy can coach. Uh, we've seen that at every stop he's he's been at. Uh, and, and so the Oklahoma offense, let's talk about the defense. I guess we're here, we're talking about it. You guys have both kind of circled around it. Uh, we, I want to talk about the culture of this team. I want to talk about big picture stuff as well. I want to talk a little bit more about the offensive performances, but I think the defense is like what, what really people want to talk about the days after the game. So let's talk about it. Oklahoma's offense, as Chris mentioned, missing multiple pieces, uh, especially up front. There are two starting offensive tackles. I think multiple offensive linemen in addition to those yeah. guys. Injured center for the game. A guard also didn't play in the game. So essentially they were playing with four backups. Now three of those four are experienced players. So mm-hmm. there's a little bit of there. But in Oklahoma's offensive line, similar to Florida in FSU's prior game, is a very large physical offensive line. And that's something I think we've seen FSU on both sides of all the trenches. Bigger physical teams are still giving them mm-hmm. some fits. And that's I think that's what I want to articulate here. There's this narrative that FSU gets worked against competent offenses. You guys kind of alluded to this earlier. Competent offenses are going to put pressure on defenses, whether they're good defenses or below average defenses. Like offenses in modern college football are meant to like rules benefit them. The pace of the game benefits them. Things benefit offenses. And we saw that in the college football playoffs the other day, this narrative that FSU a feast on bad offenses and then can't do anything against good defenses. There's so much nuance missing in that conversation. And, it pisses and backup me off. quarterbacks and backup, backup quarterbacks. quarterbacks as part of and that. And okay. Like everyone's going to face backup quarterbacks. FSU had to play its backup quarterback against Louisville. Like you, defenses are either going to have to stop them or not. Like it just, it gets, all right. I got numbers that are going to say something that I had probably not going to articulate well myself. So there is this narrative that FSU cannot stop a good offense that it gets worked. And if you just look at how the splits, like, yes, if FSU is facing a top 20 offense versus a bottom 20 offense, like, yeah, they're going to look worse, but you have to filter that out for every single team. You can't just do the splits for FSU doing good against a, 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 or doing just measuring how FSU performs against a certain offensive opponent. Like it's not fair to do it in a vacuum of just one team. You have to do it for everyone. So let's filter it out. Let's take how teams do, against offenses on a yard per play basis. I think that is probably the most, uh, the singular probably best metric over a span of a season of judging uh, how a, a team performs. Okay. So FSU was like a top 20 defense in yards per play, a top 10 offense in yards per play. So FSU, I'm going to filter it out here to just power five teams and how they do against other power five teams on a yards per play basis. Uh, now the, the other power five teams that I'm, accounting for are going to be the ones that are in the top 26. So above average, how many power five teams are there, Chris? 65? Yes. That's not right, including Notre Dame. So this is these are teams. So I'm taking the top 26. So these are the teams in the 
above average to great. You know, so this is ranging from Arizona State, Wake Forest, where that were okay to good offenses, all the way to like Tennessee and Ohio State. So accounting for those opponents. I think FSU faced four teams that fall in this in this range of of being in the top 26. Or sorry, yeah, top 26 for power five offenses facing yards per play. So when you filter that out to what FSU has done this season, this season in total, against competent power five offenses, FSU is allowing five. 0.07 yards per play on defense. Want to guess where that ranks nationally? Ninth. Zach? 11th. First. <laughs> wow. All right. So, and, and we can play with numbers and other people can take other numbers and skew them. And this is like a filter to just one stat. If I take this to like success rate, FSU is probably in the 20s. You know, 20s. Uh, if I take it and filter it out towards uh, points per drive, FSU is probably like 15th or something like that. What if I about correctly. third down? Do you have that one readily available? Uh, third down conversions. I could do it just on conversion. Yeah, this is going to be one that, that probably hurts them. They're 29th out of 65 teams. So the middle of the road. Yeah, so the middle. But in none of these categories is FSU poor when facing good offenses. They are average to very good or great in certain areas. There just needs to be a level of context and nuance to this conversation. Do we think that Adam Fuller is a championship-level defensive coordinator? Not yet. He hasn't won a championship, so we can't say that he is. Can he get them there? I mean, the numbers would say that's unlikely, right? Like, there's only a handful of defensive coordinators who have won national championships. Most of them get promoted to be head coaches. Hell, two of them are head coaches this season, one at Oregon and one FSU just faced against Oklahoma and Brett Venables. So there's very few people that have been coaching that are currently active that have won national championships as defensive coordinator. I get that the expectations have ramped up based on what FSU has done this season. I understand there are concerns about how the defense looks at times. All right. There, there are times where it is concerning. There's technique issues that AB and Kev have pointed out in video before. Like there are things that exist to, to point, okay, there's some things that are concerning, but this narrative that FSU gets gashed and it's the only good defense that gets gashed against good opponents it's bullcrap. It's not true. It's fabricated. And like, look at the whole picture. Like there's things that could be worked on. It's nowhere as dire as people are making out the same. And I think it's ridiculous. And I would add a little bit fan perspective to this. Some people say, well, blow it up higher, go hire an elite DC. And we've chatted about who are elite DCs. And the first name I threw out was the young man that was at Illinois, who is now a head coach at Purdue. So there's not a whole lot of them that are readily available that you can go and pluck. So if you're going to fire a guy, you got to know who you're going to hire. That's going to be better. Yeah, That's one thing. The other thing is FSU defensively year over year in the Mike Norvell era has gotten better. And a major reason it's gotten better is because of talents acquired and the fixing of issues. And I think, again, if you look at what they're doing currently via the portal and high school recruiting rights, they are addressing needs. They go and get a guy like Braden Fisk who will help him on the interior. He's an athletic big body who I think allows a lot of versatility up front. We know they're going to go after defensive ends, specifically one we're going to talk about a little bit later here, plus the possibility of bringing a guy like Jared Burst back. Linebacker, we saw a massive step up last year. I think getting a kid like Blake Nicholson speaks to them wanting to get more athletic at that position, and they're going to continue to do that. I know some people think they should go after a portal linebacker, I don't know if there's one out there that fits needs that they have who can also probably accept being a too deep player, not potential starter. That's kind of one of those things you got to balance with what you're bringing back versus what you need. I think that's part of the discussion missed at times. Corners a position that all year, especially in the first half of the year, we beat the living hell out of because it wasn't very good at times. 
Well, they just went and got arguably the best corner in the portal in Central Cypress. Safety is a spot where they've got to improve because they're losing Jamie Robinson. They're losing a reliable reserve and draw Quest McClellan pack. So they need to fix that. They intend to do that. I think you can look and see that they understand that to take a next step, they need to take a next step from a too deep roster value standpoint. And they're being aggressive in that. Now, do I have concerns if Adam Fuller can allow FSU to go to that next tier, that next level? Yeah, I legitimately have that concern. I've voiced that before on this podcast. I don't think he's a bad coach by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know if he's the coach that allows you to take the next step to where you want to get, but I think he is capable of it. I think they understand that at the end of the day, Jimmy and Joe's being put in the right position with decent X's and O's, you're going to have good results. I think FSU is trying to address the things they're struggling with getting pushed around at times up front a little bit. Also, some issues with allowing your guys to play the way you would like to play in the back half of your defense, whether that's man or zone, how you match up. What can you win? Are you going to win one-on-ones? You know, you're running Duke Cooper out there because of injuries, and Duke Cooper, who was phenomenal in year one, was awful in year two in comparison. And it's a lot loss of confidence for the young man, but he also just gets picked on at this point. Oklahoma immediately went after him when he entered that game and had success against him. It is what it is. But that was the option they had. They don't have another option right now. And people will say, well, they need to develop them better. Yeah, that's probably true. I'm not going to act like it's not. Development is a huge piece of the puzzle. But if you listen to the staff that works at this university currently, they understand that development is a huge piece of the puzzle. So, like, some patience. They improved them to a 10-win team this year. Let's see if they can take the next step. Don't fire a guy because you're not sure he can take the next step. Fire him when he has shown he cannot take the next step or make necessary changes when they've shown they cannot take the next step. I think that's where I fall in at the end of the day, at the discussion as a whole of what is FSU going to do defensively. Do I am Would I go to Vegas right now and bet money that I think they can do it? No, I wouldn't. But I'm not against waiting and seeing if it can happen either. Yeah, and I think this, this comes down to, you know, an improvement of overall personnel on that side of the ball, which we've seen FSU do so far this offseason. Right, uh, the new year hit, and we've got Fabian Lovett coming back. FSU's, you know, arguably their best defensive player, uh, most impactful, I would argue. Um, when he's not in the game, they they do poorly. They perform poorly on the defensive side of the ball. So, um, you get him back. You get arguably, you know, one of the best players overall, and probably the best defensive back in the in the portal in Central to Cypress out of Virginia. And you have the possibility of getting Jared Verse back. They're still in it for a few other portal guys, which we'll talk about in a bit. They're trying to upgrade that that side of the ball um, to try and make a run next year. Um, and, and you know that that stuff like that 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 matters, right? I mean, you're you're working with a defensive backfield that's made that's comprised of former three star recruits out of high school mostly, right? Um, Jamie Robinson is a transfer. Akeem Dent was a highly touted recruit. Um, but your corners, I mean, Duke Cooper was like a high three-star, low four-star kind of guy. I think Renardo Green was a three-star. Those are your, you know, Jerry and Jones is a transfer. Like, you need to upgrade the overall talent level of that defensive backfield. They've already started to do that. Um, and then you're, you're beefing up inside. You've got your two starting linebackers coming back next season. I think the defense has a chance to look a lot better next, this coming year. Um, so we'll see. But I, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not one to to sell stock on a guy because, like Chris said, I I think you you pointed it out perfectly, Chris. Why, like, you're gonna fire someone before they have the chance to show the opera or show that they can't do something? Like, 
they got to 10 wins this season because of the offensive mostly and defensive performance throughout the year. Um, and you're going to go into next season with what looks like on paper, a better and more talented defense. Um, let's see how it, let's see how it goes. Right. Uh, that's my mindset going into next season. So there's a book, the big shorts by Michael Lewis, who also did Moneyball. And I'd be totally honest. I, the big short was so boring to me. I love Moneyball. It's my favorite book. Big short was so boring. I stopped after like 50 pages, but there was this one theory that one of the, uh, one of these investors who was able to kind of see and foresee what was going to happen with the housing market back in the mid 2000s, his theory for investing in general was it was far safer to buy a stock and know like, okay, the worst it can do. I know when I make this investment is that it can go down to zero. Like that's the worst is it'll, it'll completely blow up and not become anything anymore. That is far safer, far less dangerous of a risk then selling it way too early before it potentially blows up. And that was his his theory. And it, a lot of people struggle to understand that. And I know it doesn't make sense inherently, but but basically selling early on something before it's a finished product, before you know exactly what it is, uh, is lost opportunity. And to both of your points, FSU's defense has gotten better year over year with the staff. We have every reason to believe that it'll take another step forward next year with what seems to be coming back. We'll see with Jared Verse, uh, with the transfer additions you guys have mentioned, with a group that largely has shown it can develop personnel across the board. Again, there's some position groups, and some of those are in the secondary. If you want to have some concerns, I'll listen to that. But this is still moving in the right direction. Chris's point was, I, I think, beautifully articulated. Like, I don't want to, to say this is done before we know what the upside is. I think it's still reaching it. If you take a slide back, if you show you plateau, then we can have the conversation. I, I just, I think we've gotten to, to the point where people are trying to anticipate what's going to happen. One thing I've learned from covering this program the last few years under Mike Norvell, and I've said this about player development, and I'm going to say just about coaching and recruiting and everything in general, uh, you're allowed to get better. And they continually get better in multiple areas. And that's something that I, I just keep in the back of my mind at all times. Another big picture view. Remember where the offense was 12 months ago. Look at where it is today. It's one of the top 10 offenses in FSU history. It's nationally extremely highly competitive offense, explosive. They went and addressed needs. They fixed things. Ron Dugans looks like a hell of a lot better coach today than he did 12 months ago. And he got some dudes. That's part of it. Uh, the defense is good. I think the next step is capable to be there. And then I will give them credit. They had a plan when December kicked off of how are we going to go get what we need to be better next year while also developing our depth and adding younger guys into the fold here. And to this point in time, they have damn near perfectly executed said plan. Yeah, so, other than other than Keldrick Falk, like and, and this staff has to get better at high school recruiting still. Like yeah. that's that we all see it and we cover it. Yes. But but they are doing a hell of a job in the portal. I think that's an undervalued asset still nationally, the way it's perceived. Um, and it's, it's still like there are areas to improve, but I think it is still improving. Does that make sense? And Keldrick Falk wasn't going to help FSC next year. He's a long-term buy who's going to make you better long-term. He's a talented cat. I think he's going to be a very good college player, but he wasn't going to impact FSU in 2023. They're much more likely to get a guy out of portal who's going to impact him in 2023. And that's not to say they should take the portal guy over Falk. My point is if we're playing the short game and next year, 2023 is when we're pushing the chips in, what they could potentially land going forward in the portal is much more important than what they missed on there. Not saying I'm happy they missed on Falk by any stretch. I don't want them to get twisted. 
right, let's take a step back now. I think that was I think that was good nuanced conversation about the defense. Uh, back to Oklahoma FSU. Uh, so Oklahoma does. Uh, let's see. I'm getting the final stats here. Sorry, I had I had it split into uh, into quarters and halves. Um, so FSU does allow 496 yards of total offense, 5.9 yards per play, 32 points. Uh, none of that's particularly good, especially given what Oklahoma was missing. But I will say this: uh, one, the offense with what you guys talked about earlier. I think Chris, you talked about like 11 points in the first half for the offense. I mean, FSU averaged eight yards per play. It was just some of those. Uh, one of two on field goals, uh, just kind of bo- drives would bog down. Uh, you didn't protect your defense against a tempo team with points. And when you're playing against a good, competent tempo team, like scoring early and allowing them and forcing that offense that you're facing to become one dimensional is huge. What we saw yeah. was Oklahoma was able to be two dimensional, run the ball. FSU did not want to give up the big play. I think that's what's disturbing, man, is they gave up big plays in this game. Uh, despite keeping their two safeties back and having that that high shell consistently, right? Um, yeah, there was some impressive play calling. Uh, first and foremost, Sawchuck, I know he's, he went over 100 only his second game. And talking to some of the Oklahoma media that covers him, that, that dude thought of very highly. There's a lot of people in that program who think he may be the most talented back in a room that did include Eric Gray, who ran for like 1,300 yards before opting out, and Javante Barnes, who we're very familiar with because of his recruit. Sawchuck is really good. Barnes is really good. They're explosive backs, and OU is going to run the ball under Venables. That's a Venables staple. Real quick, Chris, we once had a coach tell us, oh, like a miss that you have recruiting can't come back to hurt you. That one almost came back to hurt FSU. Both of those guys were fun to watch. I thought the two backs, I thought the Stutzman kid on defense and Mims, obviously, at receiver for them were all ultra-impressive players. Mims made that catch to start the fourth quarter early in the fourth quarter by Mims was absolutely phenomenal down the sideline. Who was the tight end? Uh, Braden Willis, I believe it is. Yeah. He created some, like, he made life uncomfortable for them. Uh, he demands attention, which yeah. opens up things for other people. I also, so early in the game, OU would basically slide their receivers to create one-on-ones and then attack the one-on-one. Uh, and it would be like a very late pre-snap slide where it they essentially were uh, ISOing themselves on the guy they wanted to get as a defender to go attack said defender. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really impressive. They also did some stuff with, like, whip. Uh, and just motion off the edge where they really got FSU off balance and missed tackles add up, and that allowed for some really big plays. I, I, I watching it in person, I was impressed by the play calling. Rewatching it, I, I thought the play calling by OU was really, really good. I, I also thought OU just came to fight. Um, I thought OU was a very physical team on both sides of the ball. It got mm-hmm. chippy for that reason, and FSU also got physical and chippy at times. But I, I thought OU was aggressive. Yeah, they were able to get up early, and, and then all of a sudden you're an underdog by 14 – or not 14 points, 10 points, excuse me. Um, and you're in a game then all of a sudden. What I will say is like that Oklahoma's offense, when Dylan Gabriel is there healthy, and we saw a stretch of the season when he's not there, it's a totally different offense. Uh, they average about, I think, 35 points per game with Dylan Gabriel. So, again, con- context here, FSU allowed fewer points against Oklahoma than it normally would score with its – quarterback it actually allowed about a yard less per play so the defense did not perform remarkably well uh but again as these bowl games are so hard to judge because some some guys are sitting out some guys are opting out both sides of the ball were missing players in that matchup uh but but really let's talk about the offense because i think that's what saves the day for fsu they started off slow and we usually were so victim to what we saw and what we saw like most recently and most recently we saw was the offense great at the end they struggled to consistently 
punch it in in the first half. 11 points against that defense, not acceptable. But they kept at it. They altered what they were trying to do. Like a lot of like their outside zone stuff was not working well. They weren't able to get that. Brent Venable shut it down by protecting the edges and the perimeter of the defense. Uh, so you countered in different ways. Zach mentioned that Jordan Travis was able to uh, start picking apart Oklahoma's secondary. That was huge. Uh, and then you get some just remarkably like athletic plays from Johnny Wilson in the second half. And he had the drop that was obviously uh, impactful, but that huge catch on third down over the middle of the defense where that wingspan shows was big. And, and then obviously the one-handed catch. My dad is still talking about that days later. Uh, Johnny Wilson has what, 200, 202 yards receiving. Um, and he was a man against boys at times. So the offense ended up being really good when you needed it to. It was great in the second half, 587 yards total, 8.2 yards per play is phenomenal. Could have been better. He left some stuff on the field, but you know what? Um, you end up finishing in the red zone five of five. He had the one missed field goal, some drives bogged down when you got uh, beyond like the 40 yard line or so. But you know, it, listen, this is a really good offense. This is a really well-coached offense. You were able to have so many counters for what defenses do. Trey Benson wasn't able to get it going. Uh, you have Treshawn Ward come in and, and provide a huge spark, 8.1 yards per carry for Treshawn Ward. So offense was was really good and, and just got better as the game went on. You could feel it. You could feel them starting to lean on Oklahoma's defense a little bit. Run game got going. It became balanced, uh, and it was a lot of fun to watch. Two of the first four drives for FSU ended on downs. One was a fourth and one where FSU just didn't get enough of a push. The other one, I believe, was the Cam McDonald drop, correct? Yeah, and then we didn't see Cam McDonald much the rest of the yeah. game. I mean, that I think, drop and Johnny's drop are both brutal, but those are the only two drops FSU had in the game. Go ahead. And the, and, I mean, uh, go ahead, Zach. That, that we know, I think a missing part of the Florida State offense that's been so lethal this year is the ability to go and get one, two, three yards on a third down and fourth down and short. Like, they, they cannot consistently do that. I think part of that is, you know, upgrading even more on that offensive line. They do a lot of stuff. Um, you know, to try and scheme things open. Um, but I think uh, when you when you need to go get a yard or two or three um, on, a, on a critical down, it, I think FSU needs to improve. Um, and I think, you know, maybe you you see that improvement with what FSU's done through the portal, right? You, you get multiple offensive linemen, two really good tight end transfers. Um, maybe that helps you out a lot um, when you're scheming those those you know, plays up. But that's, that's something that FSU definitely needs to improve on heading into next season. Yeah, it's probably a reason three offensive linemen transfers average about 325. Keandre Jones is a large ass. He can run right behind. Oh. Jeremiah Byers is a big man who's athletic, who you can do things with. And Casey Roddick's a guy that's played a lot of football at a very high level. So, you know, yeah, I'd agree with Zach wholeheartedly there. I think FSU understands that for them to take another step offensively, short yardage ability without having to get overly creative and therefore putting yourself in peril because you're doing things where the ball is moving in a lot of ways, lining up and just running straight. That's what they want to be able to do at some point. And I think that's something they're working towards. Yes. So with the offense performance, we touched on some of the standouts there. Uh, shout out to Ontario Wilson. He goes out in style, had some really nice catches, five catches, 74 yards, uh, biscuit, have yourself a game. The, the play they had to scheme him open. It's like a tackle yeah. eligible. That was fun. That was awesome. I enjoyed Darius just standing there watching from the slot. <laughs> so let's talk about Darius Washington. And uh, and when we – The man I, I gave up on at tackle? You can say not, it. Go ahead. This team gets better. It, it Players are allowed to get better. And I just – I will get that tattooed on my back when they win the national championship is they're allowed to get better. Um, 
but no, Darius Washington played well, and he he played well the back half of the season. And yeah, really and, since the weight game. Yep, I mean the weight game, and that was I mean he got he's a guy that was not a hundred percent that had to play left tackle and was put on a freaking island with what Wake, Wake did scheme wise. The coaches kind of let him down in that moment, and I think they admit to that that like hey we did not adjust well to this, um, but culturally is what I want to talk about. I think with these bowl games, like we put so much, we get into the minutia and we've broken down uh, 30 minutes now on the bowl game and then some big picture stuff. Uh, but what I think the bowl games show more than anything is, is buy-in and culture. And even something as little as like, Chris, you were there covering the, the fun, the fun spot before the game. Uh, there were times Chris will remember this with the, the end of the Jimbo Fisher uh, era teams I think it was the Peach Bowl, especially like guys did not want to be there those days leading up to it. They were kind of complaining about some of the events. They were checked out uh, to see players having fun and enjoying the moment. Like, that's cool. That's good. And then to see that translate over to the game and you, know, you fight, you you go down. Was it 14-3 early? Did they go down 14-3? Yeah. yeah, and okay. it was almost 21-3 before a penalty brought OU back. So – you you're able to overcome a poor start and you battle. Right. And that's like culturally, like that's, that's what this team has become. We expect that at this point. And, and that contest just further solidified, like how healthy FSU is from a culture standpoint, Johnny Wilson has a drop and Brett wrote about this, this is a great star column that he wrote. Johnny Wilson had that key drop, but he ends up having key moments in the game. Jared verse did not help him have himself a great day. Well, he was great in, in big moments. Jordan Travis throws an interception, and Chris has articulated what he did after that interception. Uh, guys respond, and that is something that Mike Norvell preaches constantly. It's a message that, you know, listen, if you're going to, if that's going to be part of your DNA. If you're going to say something over and over and over again, you have to live it. This team lives it. And I, I think the moment of this game that that probably touched all of us and, and, and impacted us in, in a certain way was after the Jazz and Turnitine injury. An injury that looked bad right away. Um, you see stretcher come out and air cast, and like you know that that's not that's not good. Keep in mind that Jason Turnitin was the last scholarship player to arrive on campus, or one of. He was a guy that was going to only be here for a year. He's a guy who did not start the season, um, but ended up playing starting caliber snaps throughout the season. I don't think you get ten wins without him, based on the injuries you've had on your offensive line. He was FSU's highest-graded player against Oklahoma coming off the bench after Robert Scott got hurt and Darius Washington had to kick over to, to one of the other tackle spots. Jazz gets hurt at the end of the game. And to see Darius Washington go up to him at to Jazz after he's on the stretcher, and we've seen Darius do this before, him walking, waiting to walk out with Keyshawn Hilton after Keyshawn Hilton's you know, injury or had been injured in one of his first games back uh, as just a spectator and walking across the field 100 yards with his friend from Pensacola. Darius sits and waits for Jazz to get up on the on the cart and then gives him this big old bear hug. And that starts this chain of FSU players coming up to Jazz and you know, giving him a high five, giving him a pat on the shoulder, um, giving him well wishes and love. And soon the entire bench empties to go do it. And what felt like this awful moment ended up somehow feeling like a celebration of of culture and a celebration of like playing for each other and, and loving each other and that was to me that was as big as anything that happened in the game that was if you want to buy into what this program has become and where it's going 
that's the moment. I get chills thinking about it still. It was it was so freaking cool. Yeah, and I know we bang on culture, and it sounds cliche. Go read uh, Q and A's with transfer kids that are coming in here. They talk about culture quite a bit. Ben Charles Cypress yesterday made it abundantly clear to me that a major reason he liked FSU beyond the fact that they're primed to be a very highly competitive team next year is he looked at the culture, nobody opting out of the ball, everybody playing for one another, the way they're together, and said, I want to be a part of that. So let's move on. That wraps up the season for FSU. They're 10-3, and uh, a really fun year. Chris, first 10-win season since, what, 2016, that Orange Bowl team? Yeah. Okay, so you're moving in the right direction. Nothing about this team feels particularly fluky. Like uh, this, this, there seems like there's something sustainable here. We will. The be NC turning... State loss felt pretty fluky. <laughs> I mean, okay, so your loss feels fluky. I'll take it. Uh, yeah, that that in hindsight, I mean, that's a toughie. Um, that's the one that's going to stick. The middle eight time. against Cle- the middle eight against Clemson, uh, where they toyed with you for for that stretch and just you kind of imploded, was not great. Um, but and then Wake Forest loss. Like Wake Forest was the only loss from like. I was like, okay, you just didn't have it today. Like there was nothing like emotionally. I didn't feel angry after that or, or frustrated or like helpless. Like right, you just didn't have it. You just didn't play a good game. And it's that's so weird. Like that, that happened. Cause like you look at this team now and you're like, could that, could that happen now to them? Well, look like, at wake now. Wake was really good. First half of the season, including when they played FSU. And after that, they. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, they, they played a horrible first half yeah. against wake. And, and it's fine. Like you ended up, they did, uh, but you, you know, you caught some teams at their lowest point yeah, too definitely. this season, and that's college. It, college it bounces out in the end usually. It does. It does, and that's why I, I, people are going to get into well, they this team was hurt when you played them. Like, like again, college football, good days, bad days, injuries, like that's all part of it. Um, but we're going to spend a lot of this off season, obviously, talk about what this team can can become, and it's it's fun. We're covering this climb. Like this is this is really really enjoyable and exciting and. Chris and I have covered some really lean years recently. Uh, Zach, this is all he knows is darkness, and he's starting to see light. So, so get ready. Um, this is fun. And one reason why we're going – not the only reason, but a reason, a big one, why optimism is going to continue to build for what FSU can be in 2023, Baby and Love is back. Baby and Love is, as Zach mentioned earlier, uh, you're probably your most impactful defender, if not your best defender. I, I would argue that he's your most impactful for sure. When he doesn't play, it's drastically different than when he does. He it's is so noticeable. It is. It, it just, I mean, the numbers will point it out, but you can just the naked eye will tell you. Like, yes, they can't stop the run. Not consistently. Uh, he he's a tone setter. What he is as a leader, as a, an adult, I mean, he's a father at this point in his life, and has this level of intensity and experience, professionalism to him. Like that's what you're getting with Fabian Lovett coming back. Um, and we thought guys like that, there was a pretty good chance it would happen uh, by the end. Uh, I posted something like minutes before he announced uh, thinking it was more likely than unlikely for him to come back. Obviously if I knew hundred percent, he was going to come back, I would have phrased it a little differently. So it wasn't like, Oh, I knew for sure, but we thought there was a good chance that he was going to come back. Uh, but yeah, it was a great day for the battles end to get Fabian Lovett uh, to come back. And it's a great day for FSU's defense. Um, I want to F- focus. Oh, go ahead. FSU was seven and zero with Fabian Lovett in the lineup this year. Okay, Crazy. And there, there you go. Uh, Wait, can we talk about the defensive tackle room right now? So yeah, let's. That's what I want to talk about. So the defensive tackle depth, the versatility of it, the numbers of people. Uh, if you guys are fans of the Wire, Marlo says it sounds like one of them good problems. And there were people on the message board yesterday that were not sure of well, what are we going to do. Like we have all these guys that we're going to use them all. You figure it out because you have talent now. 
So yeah, Odell let's get, Higgins. Let's get Odell into Higgins historically and covering them now 20 plus years. I want six to eight that I can rotate and I treat them all like starters. That is his bread and butter statement on what he wants his room to be. He's not a guy that's like, oh, I got two and I'm just playing it. No, he wants six to eight. He wants in the fourth quarter him to be able to run out, whether it's a Fabian Lovett who's listed first team on the depth chart, Daryl Jackson, second team, or, you know, Io Tafasi, third team, for them to be able to go out there and just screw people up. That's what he wants. He wants guys who play 25 to 35 snaps each and just can bring it when they need to dig down and have that moment have it. I'm sure two years ago when his D tackles were playing 50 plus snaps in games, he was probably pulling out what little hair he has left on his head because I'm, that's not what he wants to be doing. So he's probably feeling pretty damn good right now about where that room is. Go ahead, Zach. Are we counting Dennis Briggs as a Yes, I think yeah, he I is think that's where he stays. And I think that's his better of his two spots for sure. And he, well, he looked better in the ball game than he had looked at any other point this year. Yep. So we start Fabian Lovett, obviously, the dude coming back. And then you add two impactful transfers in Braden Fisk out of Western Michigan, um, one of the top defensive linemen in the portal. Um, and then Daryl Jackson, a top five defensive lineman in the portal out of Miami. Both uh, over 300 pounds. I think Braden Fist is six foot five. Daryl Jackson six foot six. Just massive size, uh, adding into the inside, interior of that defensive line. And then you've guys, you've got guys already on your roster, right? Uh, like you said, Dennis Briggs, a veteran. You know, Josh Farmer, who's been here a few years now, um, and has, has flashed some greatness. Um, you know, aside from that face mask, that would have been a, an awesome play in the bowl game um, when he brought Gabriel down. Malcolm Ray, a veteran guy. And then some really, really promising youngsters like Daniel Lyons, who had a lot of meaningful snaps against Oklahoma. Daniel I, Daniel Lyons was FSU's highest-rated defender per PFF this year. Limited sample size, but uh, he yeah. played, and he didn't play against garbage. He didn't play garbage it's minutes. Clear, they, and it's they, clear they, that this team, this staff, values him a ton. Yes, they how, think how very, very highly. Had to go in uh, when when they needed, you know, some they needed help uh, in that Oklahoma game um, on the interior especially with Fable gone and, and you know, some of the stuff that was going on in that game. I think Daniel Lyons helped them a ton. Um, Ayobami Tafasi, I mean, this is a guy that we didn't get to see at all this year because he was, you know, redshirting. Um, but, man, he looks super impressive in practice, and his frame is just uber impressive. It, 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 he's a guy I'm really excited to watch. Um, and then Bishop Thomas, an athletic, you know, undersized guy, but an athletic dude that, that can, you know, rush the passer. And then incoming true freshman Keith Sampson. Uh, top 200 prospect nationally. Yeah, top 200 prospect, a guy that was insanely productive on the high school level. Um, he'll come in during the summer and, and you know get acclimated to the program. So, and and Tay Woody as well. Woody, who also moved to defensive tackle. And we'll see kind of where he where he lines up in spring ball, but a guy that FSU moved to that, to that room um, later on this season. Are we about to see some bear fronts around these parts? So I, I do think we need to talk about like how you play all these guys. And yes, the, the Chris mentioned the rotation of them, like that's huge, but there's this level of versatility that presents itself yeah. to where, uh, so like Fabian Lovett in his career has played the one tech or the three tech, right? He's six, four, 320 pounds. Think about like a basketball team, like how different, the, and I guess it's changing a little bit, but like you have guys with different roles, different body types, point guard to center, different skill sets. That's kind of what this defensive line and specifically this defensive tackle group is becoming. So you have Fabo, who, who's just your strong manhandler. Like, I will, I mean, he just tosses people around. He will probably be the one tech 
which might be more natural for him with Robert Cooper gone. Then you have Braden Fisk. He's your three tech, right? Because he's six foot five, he's 300 pounds. But go ahead and get, watch him against Western Michigan. Uh, Kev talked about this. Like he's basically what Jaheim Bell is with a super often, uh, versatile offensive piece. Uh, Braden Fisk is this movable, uh, super athletic, high energy defensive player. Uh, last year, according to PFF, Fisk had 300, or, excuse me, 737 snaps. 301 of those were playing in the B gap area. 213 of those were outside the tackle. 182 of those were in the A gap. And then 41 of those were directly over tackle. There is is this level of athleticism that he had at the Mac level, but also played really well against Pitt and Michigan State the last two years to where you can move him around and figure it out. That in turn then allows you to maybe use someone like Jackson, who was more of a three-tech player. He's 6'6", 300 pounds, plays really well in space. Or you start looking at Josh Farmer. What does he grow into, right? Like he was a three-tech guy this year, but he's got some Timmy Jernigan build and like to him, like the way he looks, like there's stuff there. And this is a guy who was probably only, what, 230 pounds two and a half, three years ago. Uh, He's still growing. Then you mentioned Dennis Briggs. Like he is, he he played at 280 pounds this year, 6'4", 280 maybe he gets watch him to- on the, yeah watch him on that last play against yeah. Oklahoma. the athleticism that's there um, like Malcolm Ray is someone like we're not even talking about but he's a capable interior pass rusher and will have a defined role um and then all the young guys I mean Daniel Lyons and and Ao Tafasi like so might be the most stacked position on the roster it, might be, one of the, it uh, might be one of the most stacked positions in the country when Mike Norvell would talk about defensive tackles uh, in past years, like what they were looking for, what they were signing, Robert Cooper wasn't that. Correct. And they love Robert Cooper, heart and soul guy. There's not a single human being that covers this program or within the program who would say a negative thing about Robert Cooper. Me especially. I love the dude. We missed but the Robert, last sprint. We didn't get to see it. Yeah. But Damn Robert it. Cooper is not the type of D tackle they want. They want a little bit smaller, but yet big, but really athletic can play multiple spots. That's sort of what they want. They want versatility. And Robert was more line them up over the middle, let them consume people and try to get off. Um, so I think we've seen that transition. I think with the fact that love, it probably slides into Cooper's role as far as a depth chart standpoint, I think you're going to see a lot of that. I also think love it played his best when he was beside Keir Thomas last year. And I think Fisk brings some of that quality potentially. And I, I just think there's some interesting dynamics at play there, and I'm looking forward to it. I think that that group, because of both the experience has been gained by a lot of young guys and some of the improvement at the top of the room as far as transfer types like Fisk and obviously Love It was a transfer a few years ago. I think that they've kind of built it into exactly what they want to be, and it's going to be so much deeper and more capable of uh, sustaining than it was at times this year. They, they flat out got put in a pickle between the LSU injury with Lovett and the Louisville bang up that happened with multiple guys getting hurt where they were playing young guys well before they wanted to be playing them, but it's all they had. It's all they could play. So, yeah, I think they feel a heck of a lot better about where they stand now. As we talked about earlier, like judging, I guess for lack of a better phrase, evaluating Adam Fuller in this defense, like this is like now you're starting to get your pieces fully in place, not just, two recruiting classes and the COVID year and the transition class. Like now you're starting to get like what you want your team to look like, what you want the mold of. And so now we can start saying, okay, this is your more or less your finished product of, of how you vision it for this, you know, for this makeup. And now like 2023 becomes a, a year of, of 
not scrutiny. I, mean, I guess maybe scrutiny. Like we're watching this as closely as we ever have of like, yeah. you're now, you're now gauging it on the grand stage. Another like quick note on the defensive tackle room. I kind of like how it's made up now with, you know, guys that are going into their final year of college football and Fabian Lovin and Braden Fisk, both guys that have NFL aspirations. Obviously everyone on the roster has NFL aspirations, but those guys are as close to it. Um, Contract year. Yeah. I mean, it's a money year, right? So um, I think with those two guys kind of leading the room along with some other veterans um, and some really talented young freshmen slash um, underclassmen pieces, I just like how it's made up. Um, It's not, you know, front or back heavy with veteran or or youngsters. Uh, It's kind of balanced. And I think that's going to serve FSU well um, for not only this coming year, but for years to come. Let's play real quick a game of buyer Sinone. Sinone, well, help if I can pronounce Sinone. It's brought to you by the Turner Group. Who? The Turner Turner Group. Group. All right. Colin was, poor guy. We wanted to see him at the block party uh, the night before the game, but uh, Las Vegas to Orlando travel. Not sure if you guys are following along. Was not great after the holidays. So, sorry, Colin. Let's talk about, let's let's talk about. It was nuts. Some of those photos. I'm happy I was at home and all my travel was driving. Uh, let's let's play some buyer Sonoma sponsored by the Turner Group. By Orsonom, the defensive line will be elite in 2023. If Jared Verse returns, I'm buying that wholeheartedly. Buyer Sonoma, Jared Verse returns in 2023. I uh, I'm currently <laughs> buying that. Ooh, I think I'll buy that too, guys. I think that's the most likely of the three guys. Oh, when the dust settled and all the information was in there, Jamie Robinson, who went pro. Thanks for making me stay up to midnight, Jamie. I appreciate what that. What a great present. What a <laughs> gift to the world. And that's a lie. I didn't stay up to midnight. I stayed up to like 11.20. I called you at 11.53, I think it was. I I was tired and like I was disoriented. I, I don't think my wife was real happy with me on the New Year's uh, ball dropping execution on my end. Work, work consuming me, I don't think, was a popular point in the me household that evening. Yeah, yesterday I, I gave Ashley the, uh, yeah, I'll be done at 11, and then one decision happened, and I got word that another one was coming at 1. And I was like, right, I'll be done at 1.30. Sorry. Uh, it is what it is sometimes. Um, yeah, I think Jared versus probably the most likely of the three guys we've talked about between Jared, Jamie, and Fabian to come back. Now, one obviously is not coming back. One that we thought was more likely than unlikely to come back did come back. And I think, like, first, I put, like, a 75% chance at this point. I think it's more likely than not. Uh, if you get them, Zach, is this an elite defensive line buyer, Sinone? Buy. I'll buy that, too. You have Jared Verse. I think you'll have Derek McClendon back, although he hasn't announced anything, has he, Chris? I don't think D-Max announced anything, but, yeah, I think he comes back. I think, obviously, Peyton, ACC defensive rookie of the year, comes back. I think Byron Turner is a dude who's primed to take another step as a depth piece for them if he can stay healthy. And obviously, dipping in the portal potentially get some more middle depth to help fill in that bracket a little bit. Yeah, I think you still need to keep adding, and we, as we keep hinting, we'll get to that. Uh, but if you're a subscriber at Knowles twenty four seven, you already know who we're talking about in the defensive end spot. Uh, Byer Sinone, FSU will finish twenty twenty three class with the top transfer class. I don't know because I don't know how. Like Florida State might be like trying to take like one or two more and then be done. Whereas like some other schools are trying to completely flip their rosters with like 20 transfers. So like, you know, just a number standpoint, maybe not. But well, if you told me like the actual like quality of player, I don't know, like, I don't know if that's calculated in our transfer rankings. It, it is. Uh, we do like the average for it. I mean, the blue chip um, ratio is absurd right now. It's six to two. They have six 
four-star prospects in the transfer portal rankings compared to just two three-stars. And one of those three stars is Casey Roddick, who is an 89. Yes. Which is and, we, and just yeah. a tidbit, we do expect there was some some smoke that some other schools are getting involved for Casey Roddick. I, I think that I think I think I'll sign with FSU or her enroll at FSU, I should say. But some, yeah, some of these portal classes are kind of crazy. Like uh, Kenny uh, Adili at, uh, at Arizona State has 18 transfers right now. Yeah, but Colorado just, has 17. Yeah. So but for, for perspective, like. And those are both, you know, new coaches, right? Um, Dilly has one four-star, 12 – no, more than 12. Some guys who aren't ranked yet, I guess, uh, three stars. So of his 18, he's got uh, only 13 that are uh, four or three stars. Only one of them is a four-star. Colorado has the number one transfer in the country, Travis Hunter, and their ranking is 88.4, whereas FSU's average rank is uh, – per, per grade, I should say, is 91.3. Yeah, I'm synoting it from the standpoint of the list one to ten type thing. I don't think they end up one, but from a actual like taken value quality of player, yes, they will have the best transfer class in the country. I think, Brendan, you see that thrown on the board today. I think we should go back and re rank FSU's transfers from this past year. We did back. We did a podcast uh, when when you were not the third member of the bench, Zachary, uh, where we ranked the. Deuces. Uh, we we ranked the portal players uh, pre pre spring, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, like Trey Benson, post spring, we were all very thinking very differently of it. But yeah, there's a way like we could do a cool calculation of like what we think players would be graded at now and what they were uh, graded then. Uh, I think that's a really good idea. Uh, shout out who's the poster that pulled that up. Shout out to, to them. That was a good idea. We'll, we'll make that work sometime in the off season here. Um. I'll buy. I think they'll have the best portal class in the country. Still have a couple more spots that you're going to fill with with potentially quality players. Uh, I think you'll give yourself a big enough of a of a lead to where I mean it would take a combination of high quality and a lot of numbers. I mean, we're, we're saying that FSU is probably going to end up with at least ten portal guys. So there's only so many schools that are going to surpass that. And uh, if you go ahead and get some of the guys that you're you're focusing on right now, you're, you're talking about a lot of a lot of dudes who are in the top 25 or so in the portal rankings. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a really good class that they're putting together. With that in mind, one more buyer's known. Uh, you would rather have the top transferred class in the country than, let's say, uh, the number 10 prep class. Yeah, let's do that. You'd rather have the top transfer class in the country than the number 10 prep class, buyer's known. Okay, I'll go first. I will buy that in the sense of FSU's pushing the chips and trying to win next year. And I think Portal is obviously guys that you get much quicker return on in most cases, especially when you're recruited as FSU is recruiting it. So I will buy that. I think long-term it's a gamble for a program. You still got to have a level of development, investment of young guys, uh, developing the depth chart at all years. So, you know, you have a guy who's a veteran, a guy who's prepared enough to play if the veteran goes down and then another guy waiting in the wings. And I think that's why prep recruiting is still important. Yeah. Um, I'll buy that. I think that, like Chris said, it, you get more immediate return on investment. Um, and if you're the number one transfer class, I mean, that's, that means you're lending some you know, some dudes. Um, and especially, you know, considering the numbers, especially in this, this year, I mean, like we said, uh, Arizona State has like 18 commits and Colorado has 17 compared to Florida State's 10. Um, a lot of quality. Um, and, you know, if, if maybe if you told me high school – top five class, maybe I'd choose high school because that means you're landing some absolute dudes out of the high school ranks. 
Um, you know, 10 would mean that you're, you're landing some guys, but uh, you're probably not the you know, landing a bunch of the elite of the elite. Um, whereas in, in the portal, Florida State's landed, I think, what, um, four or five prospects in the top 50. So, I mean, that's just not something FSU can do right now in the high school ranks, um, at least, you know, from what we've seen the past few years. So, yeah, I, I'd buy. Uh, I take the the number one transfer class. I buy as well. I'm with Zach. I think if it was a top five prep class and the lottery tickets you'd be getting, then yes, like I would, I would take the upside of some truly like multiple blue chip elite of the elite types. But if it's if it's top 150 to 200 types that are primarily making up your top 10 class in the prep ranks, I would rather have the sure things. Um, that's one thing with the portal that I think has been so interesting is. Like we're still recalibrating as a network and as an industry on how to cover it and how to gauge it and how to evaluate it. But I think like, I think college teams are still struggling to do that. I think FSU yeah. has found that as a margin, uh, a, a margin. Oh, no, wait, what's the word? I, I, I'm brain farting. What's the phrase I'm looking for? Winning within the margin. That's it. They're finding a way to win within the margin. I'm glad that you guys just let me hang out. And- I didn't know what you were going for. Sorry, I was reading something. I apologize. <laughs> Um, uh, but but so like for example like you can like we've talked about the upside of you can coach someone the way you want to coach them without them transferring again if you after you get a transfer like you don't have to worry about placating or trying to keep someone happy or trying to figure out a way to use them i mean i think sam mccall might be a good example of that yeah, exactly. uh, i think i think texas and might have been the only school in the power five level that was like aggressively pursuing it by the way um you don't have to worry about that type of dynamic with a transfer but also we talk about like, okay, you maybe don't have the upside if you're taking a bunch of transfer guys, you would with a bunch of, of prep players, but you're getting a, a more known commodity. Yeah. You, you can better evaluate that prospect. Right. You know what they are. Right? Yes. Yeah, you can see them. what they're doing, especially with, you know, a lot of the guys that are playing either on power five teams or against power five teams. You can go and watch that film instead of trying to project years down the line from a high school prospect to me the one major downside that i could bring up for for portal recruiting is a lot of these guys are one year rentals right or two year rentals but i i'm shaking my finger at you zach you go ahead and make your point but i'm shaking it no but i think that no i'm gonna provide a counterpoint to that um to your own but point? i think but i think that that is a fair point because if you're trying to build a program right you you are going to if you're going to keep infusing this talent into the roster um you're not only i think hurting your ability to attract high school talent but you're hurting your ability to retain high school talent that you have on your roster that you're trying to develop so mm-hmm. i get that but a lot of these guys if you look at them right ventral cypress two-year guy kyle morlock at least two years i believe right um Braden fisk one year by, like a lot of these guys do have two years, and I think two years at the high at the college level is normally what you're going to be getting out of a high school prospect anyway, because they're not expected to play in their first year and probably not in their second year as they develop. So you're basically skipping that process and going and just adding a portal player into your program that is going to play at that level that you're expecting the high school kid to in two years right now in the, this coming season. And a lot of these guys are early enrollees, if not like all the guys that Florida State currently has in their class in their portal class are going to be enrolling in January. That is the expectation. So they'll get the off-season conditioning 
and spring ball to work with a team. Um, and that's something that you're maybe getting half of your high school class to do. So that's a, that's another added bonus that is not really talked about. You get that acclimation period um, for a guy that's that's trying to infuse into your program that, that's been a part of another college program for however many years. So I think that's an important note. Um, but I think there's a lot of nuance to the, to the conversation of whether – I mean, that, that's been a huge – topic of conversation especially within fsu circles if if you can sustain a program off of elite portal recruiting to some degree too that was the point i was going to make that was the point i was going to make go ahead chris that was zach counterpoint damn it i missed this to some degree i think i've mentioned this before it's all become it's one-year rosters now it's not as much of three five-year builds with rosters um and with 85 guys on a roster, there is still need for development for multi-year builds. But at the end of the day, I feel like when you hit December, you're solely thinking about what will next year's roster be for us in the sense of the 44 to 55 guys that you hope will contribute. And that's what you're building towards. So it's kind of a weird deal. Like in basketball, it's become completely one-year builds constantly. Now football, because of the amount of numbers, won't be allowed to do that. But there is still a degree of that going on. I'm trying to see if there's anything else portal wise I want to talk about. I think we touched on everything. I, 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 you've found the only okay, so the only negative with the portal that I I think I can reasonably say in I don't know if this applies to Florida State is the the rental aspect of it. It's like yeah, getting a guy to play like to Zach's point to play for two years or even a year like of starting reps in your system, whether he's a transfer transfer or a high school player. Like I, I don't think it particularly matters. Um, but you do want to make sure you have culture established, right? Yeah. And that you want to have guys who are bought in. And I think that's harder to do in a short window in a short period of time uh, that the portal reliance can bring up. However, I think FSC has been pretty good at evaluating guys with regards to that. Yep. Yeah. That, that's, that was I, a I point think- that I was in 2021 – I remember being very skeptical of the amount of newcomers that they had via the portal and, and impact newcomers, like guys who were going to be playing big, big roles for them and whether that was going to be sustainable. And while that team had its flaws talent wise, it did not have many flaws culturally. And we saw that again this year, like the newcomers, like Micah Pittman is someone who seemed okay taking on a, like not a lesser role than he had at Oregon. It was a bigger role than he had at Oregon, but he was not the guy at Florida state this year. And that was always kind of a knock on him at Oregon was like, whether he was going to be okay, not being the guy. And he was, he bought in, he played exceptionally hard. Um, So yeah, that this, what Mike Norvell and his coaching staff and everyone involved in the program has really established is uh, a level of culture to where I think you can take in guys and to Chris's point, like there's a vetting process that is thorough uh, of taking in the right type of guys. Or if you take someone like Gene Bell is going to be someone who has to be softened up a little bit and you're going to have to make him, you know, he's going to have to fit and buy in. And like, they've shown the track record of like that. That's not an issue. Like Jermaine Johnson is someone that, that had a bit of an ego coming in that worked to their advantage. They used it in a way that was helpful but he bought in and became a really great leader for other players too. So um, that negative at the portal to me does not exist currently with the way FSU is comprised, the way it's culture is. That was a huge talking point early on when the portal, you know, first started up, Uh, it was, you know, all these guys have a reason to enter the portal. Why should we go after them? They're all quitting on their teams. Right. Um, And I think (laughs) FSU is the first kind of example you can point to as, I mean, they're bringing in 10 plus transfers a year 
and really have had, I mean, little to no uh, guys that don't fit their culture. Um, and if, you know, if there is a, a, a softening out process that needs to happen, I mean, what are you going to do? You're either going to go pro, leave the program or wait a year to go somewhere else, right? You can't portal out. So I think that's a big reason why FSU is able to establish and keep their culture with new guys coming in. It's because, right, you either have to buy in or you're not going to progress your career. You're going you're gonna to stunt your career if you're not going to buy into the culture um, as an incoming transfer. I mean, I think that's kind of the, the message and, and um, the viewpoint of, of FSU with, with you know, tons of guys that are coming in every year um, via the transfer ranks. Defensive ends coach John Papuchas has spoken regularly about Jermaine Johnson and Kier Thomas elevating that room, obviously with their play, but also with their experience. They talked about Pat Payton learning how to work really well under Jermaine Johnson during that redshirt year. We obviously saw the dividends of that this past season. So I I think there's a degree of that where they've done a good job of identifying guys that they believe can help rooms uh, develop, not simply just be better on the field, but develop long term. So I I think to the the staff's credit, they're pretty good at reading human beings and investing time to understand the person they're recruiting beyond just a player that they're recruiting. Like the, the Jermaine Johnson effect is going to be felt for years because the way he rubbed off on Patrick Payton or what he did with um, what he was. Why are you texting me, Zach, on the side while I'm trying to talk? It's not appreciated. Distracted me. You're going to love it. Anyways, I don't remember the point I was going to make. Let's move on. Thanks to the Turner Group for sponsoring this segment of Virus Unknown. Sorry, Colin. Uh, my, my wife's driving away. Where's she going? She finally had enough. Uh, (laughs) New year. (laughs) New year, new husband. Uh, The number four prospect in the country, Deuce Cypress, committed to Florida State on January 1st, 1 p.m., a little bit afterwards. Uh, He's got has a 95 overall grade. He's technically the number three cornerback in the transfer portal. Uh, So so it's a cornerback uh, heavy transfer class currently. Uh, but he, he's a top five player currently ranked in the portal. Uh, our evaluators love him. It's easy to see why. Christine, you love Deuce Cypress. Uh, the, the I do. I had him as all ACC first team this past cycle. 14 pass breakups on a not very good team. Decent defense there at Virginia. I like Deuce a lot. I think he's a very talented guy. I think he's going to elevate that room. I think he also allows some position flexibility with other guys potentially making a move, helping to soften the blow at safety where you're losing a couple. Jamie Robinson and Pack McClellan. Uh, talking to Deuce yesterday about the commitment, he credited Adam Fuller, Mike Norvell, Marcus Woodson, all three for the relationships they built. He credited players for kind of making it abundantly clear that it's a program that's welcoming the guys that want guys like him who come in, compete, play at a high level, help make them better. And as I mentioned earlier, the culture stood out to the young man. He just looked at a place on his visit here and noticed that like they got things going in the right direction. And he said as much. Um, you can re- read that f- full Q&A from yesterday on the site. It's pretty good. Um, it's not super long, but I thought it was enlightening and kind of direct. And I think it speaks to the business decision that transfers are usually making. And in this case, it was a pretty easy one, it seems, for Cypress. Great job by FSU of wrapping this up early in this recruitment, and, you know, two weeks ago, early. Um, the thought was that he might take a visit or two in that January 4th to January 8th window. But that didn't happen. FSU got it done before that rolled around. That's pretty important for them. I just saw Zach's message. <laughs> uh, 
this was a huge win for FSU. I mean, they beat out legitimately Ohio State and Ellis. Did you not send it to Chris? Has he left out? Send it to Chris, too. I'm sending it to the group chat. I, I think I'll appreciate it a little bit more than you, Chris, is why. I know that Chris is privy and read the text message as well. Let's get back to Deuce Cypress. Yeah, he is a uh, he is a really good player. FSU legitimately beat out both Ohio State and LSU for him, uh, UCLA as well. Like, watching him, we have the scouting report up at Knowles 24-7. He, and also the film breakdown that, that Kevin A.B. did at the X's and Knowles channel, uh, moves extremely well, good deep speed, uh, very physical, really good in run support, good size at six foot 185 does a lot of things at a really high level. I, I think he's got some makeup of a, a shutdown corner, but he is at the very least a true number one corner and guy who's going to allow you to kind of dictate some matchups, something that, that really the cornerback play has been uh, up and down the last two seasons with some stable players, but a lot of inconsistency that we've talked about as well. Uh, this is huge. This is a big win for FSU. It's going to allow Adam Fuller, who like hat tip to Adam Fuller. We want to critique some of the, high school recruiting on the defensive staff, but like Adam was the point person for Deuce Cypress as well as Braden Fisk. Those are two top 15 players in the transfer portal. It's a total collective effort, but like uh, his sales pitch seems to resonate with some of the veterans. Uh, but yeah, so what this does for Adam Fuller's defense is it, it again gives another level of depth and versatility, kind of like what Fisk and Fable returning on the defensive line does. Like, yeah, you have that now with, with a Virginia cornerback transfer Fentrell Cypress. Uh, Chris alluded to it. I want to get Zach's thoughts real quick. Like what, what happens in the secondary now? Jamie Robinson is gone. Uh, we think they're still active in the portal for maybe a, another safety, another DB. Do you move guys around? You get, you obviously do Cypress is going to play corner for you. What does the rest of the secondary potentially look like as it stands right now? You're talking to me. <laughs> I didn't know if you were talking to Chris. Okay. I was trying to let you talk first. I'll talk if you want me to. No, I, I'm good. I'm great at it. I love talking. No, I think uh, Ventro Cypress, like you said, kind of owns one of those corner spots, whether it's boundary, boundary or field. I don't think it really matters, right? I think I think he's the the cornerback one for you now. And then you you search the rest of your roster for the other guy, right? Whether that's Renardo Green, who had a really solid season this year, um, seemed like he left the game against Oklahoma with an injury. Uh, so we'll see how that progresses. But um, Jerry and Jones uh, really came on towards the, the later portion of this season. And then you have a guy like Duke Cooper, who you're hoping has a bounce back season after not so great this, uh, one this year. Um, and then some youngsters, right? AZ Thomas um, is is the guy I would note. Um, and then there's some other guys in that room. Obviously, if you move to the nickel spot, you've got guys like Greedy and Kevin Knowles, Greedy Vance and Kevin Knowles um, that are kind of manning that 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 spot for Florida State. The back half, I think it'll be interesting. Um, you know, maybe if you find a guy um, for that other corner spot, whether that's Renardo or one of the other guys, you can move one of those uh, corners back to safety. Um, you know, I, I think the best fit may be Renardo Green, but, um, you know, we'll see. And then Shaheen Brown, obviously, is, is the guy at the other safety spot, um, aside from Akeem Dent, who has he announced whether he's coming back or not? Akeem Dent? Yeah. Not. I accidentally asked him about his decision to come back a few weeks ago at a media availability because I thought he had announced that he is. Oh, no. uh, and I think he, he did suffer an injury in the uh, bowl game that we talked about. He had to leave the game. Uh, I believe there's some level eh, to get into injuries. No, I've already said it. They can't kick us out of practice right now. I think he, he broke his foot, so that might take a little while. 
for him to, to heal, which I, I don't think a long-term, but like, as you're talking about pre-draft prospects process, the next couple months, like I, I imagine that will have some impact on the King's decision. Renardo Green's the most natural move back to safety because he's played it previously here and they actually liked him at the spot quite a bit. But FSU recruits a lot of DB starts in that corner with the possibility of them being safeties. I think they, in the spring, kind of tested out some. It also depends on who they get via the portal, who does return. If Dent returns, Brown returns, say they get a guy like a Jahad Carter from Syracuse, the safety spot has three reliable faces. You probably want a four to throw into that mix. You got to figure it out. You're kind of replacing a guy like Pack, who was super reliable, depth, veteran, understood what was expected of him. But I don't think you want to take Renardo Green and bury him as a second team safety when he was arguably one of your two best corners down the stretch this year. But then you have also young talent like Azaria Thomas waiting in the wings who you want to see get more opportunities. So to me, that's a position where Cypress comes in. He probably goes on the top of the heap at corner. And now you got to figure out how the other pieces fit to get your best five, six, seven guys out there with a consistent two deep that you feel is reliable. You hope Duke Cooper has a bounce back. You got to have some guys get healthy. And then Kevin Knowles is a guy who probably has to have something cleaned up. I don't think he was particularly healthy this year. Didn't have as good of a season this year as he did the year before. Uh, Akeem Denton, who we talked about getting banged up. Somebody, if he does come back, probably, you know, we'll see what he is in the spring. A lot to be figured out in the secondary. I think the thing is you have more reliable depth, a little bit more veteran experience. You got Jerry and Jones coming back, who's played a lot of football. You got Renardo Green coming back, who's probably your best corner down the stretch this year. You throw Cypress in there. You got AZ Thomas. You're feeling a little bit better about that. Duke Cooper is kind of a wild card. And then safety, you got to figure out how to create a solid two deep so you don't run into the situation they did at times down the stretch this year where they were just kind of very thin there again. And that's two years in a row where they reached a point late in the year they were thin in positions in the secondary down the stretch. Just from a sheer like uh, roster uh, scholarship attribution standpoint, I think that'll be better just because even some of the freshmen, like they'll have bodies this this year at the very least. Like the, at yeah, the end of this I mean, year, they didn't have – I mean – Malik Feaster was a miss. It didn't help you in the form you hoped it would help where you would have it, depth. You didn't have Travis J this year. Yeah. Um, you know, so those Tate guys taking available. up spots – who aren't are zero sum players for you? Yeah, the Feaster thing was weird because they they kind of like agreed for him to redshirt so he could transfer somewhere else, which is like again yeah. Mike Norvell, like credit to him, like they could have probably really pushed for him to play, but like they allowed him to go and and try somewhere else, and that's that's cool, I guess, right? Um, but yeah, so so anyways, the secondary will have just I think from a depth perspective and just sheer number of of capable pieces like we'll be better off we'll see how much the the top end gets improved with james robbins leaving and what you do in the portal and who improves but um should have i think it's it's very important for shaheen brown to take the next step because he brings the versatility that jamie was so great with and shaheen's got a ton of potential he's just a little bit raw of a positional play maybe maybe conrad hussey a true freshman he won't get into summer he's a guy that's going to run track in the spring for st thomas aquinas and they don't do early enrollees but the guy that, that FSU flipped last at the high school ranks from Penn State, a safety prospect who comes from a program that does an absolutely awesome job of preparing high school prospects to play at the college level early on because they run it like a college program um, at St. Thomas down in South Florida. I think he could, he's a guy that could you know maybe reach the two deep uh, at the safety position this upcoming season. Very good. good little... Thank you, Zach. And then additional note on Fentrell Cypress, I wrote this on Nelson 4-7, but he's FSU's top-rated transfer get since 
24-7 Sports started ranking players in the transfer portal in 2021. Um, he sits at number four overall in the, in the 2023 portal rankings with a 95 grade. To put that in perspective, FSU's other two top gets in the portal this offseason have been Jaheim Bell, South Carolina tight end transfer, and Braden Fist from Western Michigan. Bell's a 94 grade, while Fist is a 93 grade. And last year, their top portal get was Jared Verse, of course, the star edge rusher, and he had a 93 grade back in the 2022 transfer class. And with the way we grade, I think it's become a little bit more. We're generous. Like we yeah. see that value, like there's more 90 overall players or 90 plus players now than there was a year ago. And, and that was true the year before as well. Yeah. Like two years ago, it was really hard to get a 90 grade. I remember it was a pretty big deal that Mackenzie Milt had a 90 grade coming yeah. out. Yeah. We, we were very sold as an as a, as a ranking industry that um, like quarterbacks were the only ones who can make a gigantic impact, and that obviously has, has changed. That's kind of how it was before the portal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was. That's that's the information we had. But you know, you get new information, you you adapt, you adjust. That that's how this this all works. Uh, we're not we're not future tellers here. We're not psychics. We're not clairvoyants. Um, let's talk finally, last talking point here. It's been a long episode, but I think we've got a lot of stuff, information out there. Uh, and that's some recruiting buzz, some scoop, some more portal talk here as yeah, a little scoop. Give us um, a scoop. If you're an ice cream shop in town and you want to sponsor us. Oh, that would be sick. Hockey pursuits. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, uh, or anyone who wants to give us Culver's. money. Yeah, we'll get a national uh, drive-through chain. That that'll be realistic for us, Zach. That's good. It will. Yeah, don't sell okay. us short. Go make it happen. I got let's, it. Okay, let's talk about the scoop. So the transfer portal we've alluded to many times here in this episode. Not done yet. You still have a few more places uh, you want to go. A few more prospects you want to to bring in and address that positions of need or just bolster depth. Uh, we're not sure what the exact final number of additions will look like, but you're not done. And one of the names that will that we can report on that, that's proof that you're not done yet, that you're still actively recruiting the border, is Gilbert Edmond, the South Carolina defensive end transfer, someone that we were able to confirm and report on this morning, Monday morning, that Gilbert Edmond will take an official visit later this week on January 4th, easy for me to say, which will be on Wednesday. Uh, we'll see how long of an official visit is. Uh, you have, what, Chris, a four-day window to host official visitors, transfers, Yes, January 4th to January 8th. It's a mid-year open window. Okay, so you have a little bit of time here. We'll see if another school like LSU uh, that we've heard is kind of coming hot and heavy for Gilbert Edmond uh, enters enters the mix there. But right now you are getting the first official visit for him. You get a chance to, to go ahead and secure the starter from South Carolina. Uh, he played his high school ball in the Treasure Coast area of South Florida. Uh, so he has some ties here. Zach, someone that and I'm talking to you, Zach, just so you know, when I say Zach, I know I might ramble a little bit after, but I am pulling you in um, and asking you to be engaged when I say your name, just for future reference. Uh, someone who Mike Norvell had some interaction with when he was a, a pretty raw uh, prep prep prospect. Yeah, someone that I actually communicated with. Um, this was when Norvell first arrived at Florida State in that, that first you know, two-month recruiting class, basically. Um, he was a guy that waited to sign until February. A USF commit first uh, was first USF commit. Um, but Florida State, Mike Norvell, Adam Fuller kind of talked to him. Um, I believe they even went in home with him. Um, but it was they had not extended an offer, I believe, uh, or committable offer. 
Um, they wanted to bring him in on an official visit that last weekend of January before signing day. Um, that did not end up happening. He ended up flipping to South Carolina after taking an official visit there earlier on in January. But he was a guy that Mike Norvell had a, uh, a short relationship with. So there's some form of contact there prior to um, him heading to South Carolina, then eventually entering the portal. What I love about the portal now is everything that's old is new again. January 10th, 2020. Hey, Gilbert, are you visiting anywhere the weekend of January 17th? Didn't communicate again until December of 2022. But, you know, hey, here we are. Back together again. Reunited, and it feels so good. Uh, Gilbert Edmond, when he was being recruited by Florida State, I think it was like 240 pounds uh, as a high school senior. But like when he uh, first, if even that. Maybe he 230. Was, he, 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 he was, was like 210, 215 as a junior in high school, and he didn't put on weight as a senior. Yeah. He texted Mike Norvell. He sent me his text uh, from back then. He texted Mike Norvell. He was 6'4", 215. And that's probably, you know, probably being generous, I would I would assume. That's usually how high school guys are that are uh, DMing head coaches to try and get interest. Good old-fashioned developmental prospect who went and got somebody else's nutrition table and is now coming to be coached a little bit better. He's six, he, he's six foot five, 250 pounds currently. Looks the part. Uh, there's yeah. still a lot of green to his game, some gobs of green there. Like tackling can be iffy, and he just stops moving his feet. And you're like, don't do that. Finish the, the tackle. But you see the length, you see some explosiveness. Like there's something there. Chris said coached a little bit better. I think that's like it. If you're FSU, that's what you're banking on. You get him in for two years, and he becomes a potential draft pick for you. If you get him, you, you have to finish this off, obviously. You but. compared him to J Rob, right? I did from a physical standpoint, from what he does well, from what he still needs to become. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, J-Rob was always that guy who there wasn't a great deal of continuity for J-Rob with coaching here, but he always needed that development. But he is playing in the NFL for a reason because he is kind of big and freaky and athletic. Yeah. Yep. I actually yeah. just went through my DMs with Gilbert, um, some more context on just kind of his uh, evolution. He said during his senior year of high school, he converted from wide receiver. Um, he was playing with wide receiver at 190 pounds, so he had gained 20 pounds since June of his senior year. Um, and he said he was texting Coach Marvell that he was uh, at 210 pounds at the time of when that when that was, which was before he he enrolled at. Uh, was that January of 20? Correct. So we had him at 230 pounds as a as a network. So he must have fibbed some stuff. We had him at 230 as a as a senior prospect. He had bags full of quarters in each pocket. So so he's put on 40 pounds in about three seasons. Um, is impressive and he and he carries it well uh, yeah so there's something there if i think we will do when the dust settles when we find out what happens one way or the other with jared verse we will do is was chris's idea i think we flesh it out to do a full entire episode on like the the roster outlook for 2023 um but if you bring back jared verse and you bring back Derek mcclendon uh gilbert edmund is someone who i think he was he was like 650 snaps he took last season which is was just a lot of snaps for a defensive end if you can get him to be a 350 to 400 snap guy and be a sub starter, he may not start every game. He may start some, but a guy who basically plays 20 to 30 snaps a game, if my math is correct. Um, then yeah, like uh, that becomes extremely valuable. And then when Jared verse, if he were to, to stay and then go pro the following year, like he steps into Jared versus role and becomes a 600 snap guy with that type of development. Like that's, yeah. that's what you're looking as, as a long-term plan there. If you get him. FSU defensive line depth development goal with some of this is to be in a place where you can basically do line changes like hockey 
and feel like you're not going to drop off a cliff going from one group to the other while keeping everybody fresh and being able to play four quarters and probably being a better team at closing out games in the fourth quarter than we may have seen this past season. So one other name that we're chasing in the transfer portal currently, and some others might emerge, but the other name to note uh, is someone we're trying to confirm whether he is going to take an official visit with this week. We think there's a chance. I don't know if it's been uh, confirmed yet. I I don't believe so at the time of this podcast, Uh, but Chris, this is kind of your boy. You're, you're amused right now. I will let you talk about, about this upcoming prospect. Yeah, Jahard Carter uh, from Syracuse, talented safety, a true safety, a guy who I think can do a whole lot of different things. And with what FSU puts on their safeties, I think he's built for that. Created multiple turnovers at Syracuse. He's interested in FSU. There has been communication. I think Texas, Ohio State, some others have been involved in that. Uh, like most transfers, Carter's keeping kind of a you know low profile. Most transfers don't talk a whole heck of a lot within this process we've learned in doing this more and more in the last couple of years. But Carter is a guy that FSC does value. We do believe they're working towards trying to set a visit up. As of right now, Edmonds, the only one we know is definitively locked in for that window coming up. But Carter is definitely a name to keep on the radar, and I think there's a fairly good chance FSU ultimately attempts to bring him in for a visit. He's someone that has visited Texas already, and then Ohio State's in the mix for as far as our understanding is. So not an uphill battle, but like you're going to have some work to do. Um, the collective game will probably have to be strong here. I'm sure there's good opportunities at both of those programs. So, yeah, you're going to have some some work cut out for you here. But FSU defensive recruiting in the portal so far this cycle has been remarkably good. Uh, it always gets interesting when we start to get to the DBs because uh, things become fluid with that room. But, you know, so far, so good. Uh, that'll be an interesting one to, to follow along with. Um, all right, we're wrapping up here. I think that's everything we wanted to get to from a news perspective today. It's been a marathon of a podcast, but again, there was a ton of stuff to get to. And real quick, should FSU be recruiting a linebacker in the portal? It's been a popular topic on the board for the last few days. What? Yeah, people bring it up. I, I think because Bethune uh, oh, had some struggles game. in coverage in the bowl game. I, uh, I, I, people. So I don't think they're talking about how the starting linebackers are performing. I think they're talking about behind Bethune and uh, Deloach. Can you trust the guys behind them to go in and, and give you, you know, snaps to 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 be able to keep up um, with, with the rest of that defense. Lundy so, played well in the bowl. Yeah. We know Lundy yeah. has some limitations, but I think he's also developed into a dependable depth piece for them. They like Omar Graham. Uh, Blake Nicholson, I think, is an upgrade in athleticism for that room that they're bringing in. The depth of that room isn't great. It was dreadfully bad a year ago. I think it will continue to progress in the right manner. I think the issue right now is if you're going portal hunting for a guy, are you going to find a guy who's going to truly help you, who's willing to know that he's walking into a role where he is almost certainly not starting? I don't think they they should, personally. But I I was just saying what I think the – the, the argument is by some people. I, I mean, I missed kicked, that on the board. They've I kicked the it. tires on the high school kid, the North Texas commitment, who I actually talked to. Um, I think that's sort of a, a offer to keep recruiting type thing going on there. I don't think they're trying to push for a commitment right now, but I think they're they're sort of looking at it as long term. Where is this room when those guys at the top do depart after this coming season, most likely? Where do we stand? Where do we go from there? Do we have what we want for the future? to develop within the program right now? Or is that going to become a room where a year from now we're going to have to go portal hunting to fix it because we just don't have enough depth, enough talent, enough capable guys. Even if Omar Graham and Blake Nicholson, for example, turn into what you hope they will be, you're still a little concerned about three, four, five, six in that room. 
what do they have left? As you mentioned about the North Texas uh, linebacker commitment, and I'm blanking on the name right now, but uh, some some decent senior film, and he was hurt as a as a junior, so that's why he's under the radar. Uh, how many more official visits do they have left? Let's say they bring in Gilbert Edmond and and Carter uh, this week, uh, as as planned for the first player we mentioned, and then we'll see with Carter. But let's say you take those two. You are running to a point where you only have so many left uh, for yeah, this cycle. You have to be judicious with it. I don't think it's going to be an issue, personally. Okay. Um, they were at, about, I think, about nine left coming out of the December period. Okay. Um, so you get down to so, seven potentially this week. Yeah, which I don't expect them to. I mean, they're not they're not after any more high school guys that we're aware of other than the, the uh, North Texas linebacker. More so someone like that you want to be able to bring in if you don't uncover someone to get them in person and see what they yeah. look like. I think that's mm-hmm. like – and you have – okay, that, that answer – I wasn't concerned about it. I was just wondering what the, the math was on that. Yeah. Where are they at scholarship count wise right now? Oh, roughly, boy, Brendan. Do you know? were, I, uh, I think they're like at eighty six or eighty seven. I think they're just slightly over as it stands right now. They were. Hang on, pulling it up. Before I haven't updated since the Fabo one. I think they were like at eighty. And Jamie, um, that probably yeah. equals out, right? If you guys can talk for like five seconds, I can. Uh, I can get this. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we expect probably a little bit more attrition. We've talked about Trayshawn Ward in the past. That's still a little bit up in the air. I think Treshawn, Treshawn made a comment after the ball game where he understood Mike Norvell, what he did at Memphis with a crowded back room and how it benefited and turned out well for all of those guys. So he understands his situation. I think for him, he's weighing more. Am I fine living with potentially less than 10 carries per game, basically? Or do I want to go somewhere and be a truly featured back? It's not like uh, this place is bad. I want to go place that's better. It's more which situation more benefits me and works for me for this coming year as I aspire to higher goals in a crowded room. So, you know, I think that's an interesting one. And obviously Treshawn had a great ball game, two touchdowns, 80 something yards rushing was a massive game changer for FSU as they went from Benson style to his style. It paid off against what OU was doing. So I find that interesting. Some guys leave because it makes wholeheartedly sense for them to leave because either it's not working out here or FSU needs a spot. Treshawn Ward isn't that. Treshawn's more weighing a professional decision. And we'll see. I think we'll get clarity one way or the other with Treshawn Ward. Hopefully, well, I know we don't like one, the timeline. One would but, think before classes start, which yeah, is roughly week. a week away. I wouldn't be surprised if there's something even as early as today on it, but we will, we will see with the holidays. I think his intent before the bowl game was to transfer. I think he made that known, whether that actually was followed through with. And after the bowl game, if anything changed, we will see. That's the latest on on that specific. He, he was talking in the press conference like he was not leaving, but you know, right? So, I agree. With he love and he loves Florida State. He yeah. does not want to go. He was talking um, about like next year and stuff like that. Yeah. Whereas, like you know, obviously you got to these. You just say whatever during a press conference. I don't put too much stock into that, but uh, I think it's at least somewhat noteworthy. Yeah. I um, think his decisions informed either way he makes it. I yeah. think so too, and I think and I, he, I don't think you anyone would blame him for doing either. Yeah. Right? Um, he's no. talented enough to be a, a feature back somewhere. No, he's he has uh, he has served his his tour of duty remarkably well at Florida State, and whatever he chooses to do, um, I think he'll have the full support from the fan base, teammates, coaching staff. Like he's he's well regarded for a reason. Uh, as far as scholarship count right now, uh, so with Fabo coming back with Jamie being taken off the board, adding Central Cypress. I also had to add Braden Fisk to it. I have FSU at projected 86 scholarships right now. So a little bit more attrition still to come. Yeah. And we're, we're talking about them potentially adding at least two more. Two so to maybe mean, three more. Yeah. Yeah. That would mean at least three to four would probably have to depart the roster. And there's some spots where you look at it and you're like, oh yeah, you can probably shed some, some weight there. Um, 
we don't have to get into that, but there's probably three or four guys who you can say you move on from, you know what they are after three years or so in the program and, and you go from there. Uh, so for the rest of the week, you know, wrap it up. Yes, definitely. I'm trying to wrap it up. This has been a long podcast over for the rest of the week. Uh, thank you. Wrap it up. Music applause, uh, Oscar. We will do a round table on Tuesday evening. Trey Rowland will host it. It'll be on the Knowles 24 7. Easy for me to say YouTube. Page. <laughs> I think it's happened three or four times. I might be having a stroke currently. I enjoy when you this. talk like the Tasmanian devil. It's the first part of the podcast. Uh, oh, cheese it buffalo wings, by the way. Those may have, uh, or buffalo wing flavored cheese it's that may have given me a stroke, but well worth it. Those were amazing. Uh, that would have been number one in our taste test. Who talked you into them? Chris did. But, no, but, Carter did, didn't he? Carter know. Knee, not oh. King Carter Carls. Oh, that's right. Your Carter did did looked up from his phone for three seconds, told me to try these, and, and then I threw some at him. That's exactly what go. happened. Alcohol was not involved in any decision-making that evening. Wrap it up. Okay, I'm wrapping it up. We have a show at 9 p.m. on Tuesday. Trey Rowland hosting. It'll be a total year in review. We'll look at some bad takes we have. We'll look at some takes that were right. We'll look at the team box checkers versus landing stickers uh, on Monday evening here tonight on the X's and O's channel. Uh, they will do a recap of the FSU Oklahoma game. I will be filling in for Trey Rollins. I will be there. Uh, we'll do some other podcast stuff later on as well. Um, but we'll figure it out. All right, Zach, you're going to be thumbs up as Gabby's telling you to go. You you get us out of here. You wrap it up. So I'm going to keep talking, buddy. The caffeine's fine. Brendan Tanone for Chris Knee. This is On the Bench. Thank you all for tuning in. Make sure to tune into the rest of the shows this week. Um, peace out. Who are you? Zach Lawson. <laughs> <laughs>